This is an ABC podcast. How good is Australia? TM must call Mr Pine. Firstly, Queensland is the best country in the world. It's really foolish and disproportionate to prevent him from preaching. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive. And I'm Fran Kelly from RN Breakfast. And PK, a whiff of 1975 in the air suddenly, as all the forensic sort of post-mortems of the Liberal leadership woes of last year start to reappear post the election and starting to tell a tale of a government on the brink of... Well, maybe not a constitutional crisis, but certainly a constitutional controversy. Yes, a constitutional conundrum was about to happen. It never did because Peter Dutton never became the leader of the Liberal Party. But Paul Kelly in the Australian newspaper has revealed, so has David Crowe in the nine papers as well, that in the final days and hours of his prime ministership, Malcolm Turnbull was essentially advising, cajoling, I don't know what language, essentially the the Governor-General that perhaps Perhaps Peter Dutton could not legitimately become the Prime Minister because of the question marks, the Section 44 question marks around him. Remember that last-minute legal advice Mm -hmm. that was sought? So we knew that was all happening, to be honest. What we didn't know was all of these conversations uh, that he was having around the Governor-General. I think this is quite a significant story, to be honest, because Malcolm Turnbull doing this and people now revealing it, I mean, we don't have the response yet from Malcolm Turnbull and we're recording this on a Thursday morning. Don't know if he'll break his silence. Too. I've asked him whether he'll confirm or deny this, um, but yes, he will tell all in his own version um, of this week of leadership turmoil when he writes his book, which isn't due out till April. Now, whether he keeps his silent on this till April at the moment, but for now, he's keeping stum. PK, I think the, the fascinating facts that we're not sure of here, did Malcolm Turnbull actually call Sir Peter Cosgrove, the Governor-General, to discuss this, to tell him that, uh, you know, it would be be uh, wrong to appoint Peter Dutton while there's these doubts over his eligibility under the Constitution. Did he ring him to direct him on this? Did he try and do that? Constitutional expert Anne Toomey has told us on RM Breakfast that the Prime Minister had no has no authority to do that. She said it's not improper for him to ring and discuss with the Governor-General, but it would be improper of him to try a- and direct. So it goes to the extent of what he tried to do. If a Prime Minister had been elected by his party room, remember Peter Dutton was everyone thought was going to be elected. But then the High Court was to rule that he wasn't fit to sit under Section 44 of the Constitution. How would the Governor-General have worked his way through this? Who would he ask? Now, in the end, it was crisis averted. But questions are raised here and the extent to which Malcolm Turnbull actually went down this path, we still don't know. It's still a little unclear whether he picked up the phone to the Governor-General, discussed this and in what terms. Really what it reveals is, in my view, the desperation of Malcolm Turnbull to thwart Peter Dutton and to hold on as Prime Minister as well, Fran. I mean, that's really the big story here too, that Malcolm Turnbull was prepared to clearly do almost anything to avert this situation. Yes, so it's unclear, isn't it, by this stage, whether he was really resigned to the fact that there would be a vote and he would likely lose and he was just trying to, as you say, thwart Peter Dutton and leave time for Scott Morrison and Julie Bishop to be organised. But the PM, he gave that press conference, he gave a couple of press conferences in these days, of course, you remember, and he did raise this issue of the danger to the parliament, to the government, 
if Peter Dutton was elected as leader and prime minister before the Section 44 questions around him about his family's ownership of childcare centres, that was the issue, whether before advice had been sought from the Solicitor General to clear that up. So he did give a hint to us that he was on this bandwagon. What we didn't know was that actually perhaps potentially picked up the phone to the Governor-General and believed the Governor-General would not and should not appoint him. So, you know, certainly Malcolm Turnbull was in overdrive over this and as much of it at this stage by now perhaps all about sinking Peter Dutton's hopes. Difficult thing, I've got to say, for the government because it wants to be focusing entirely on $158 billion tax cut package that it wants to present to the parliament. Next week, the parliament is back. It's a big week, first week. The the senators and the new MPs are all at sort of, you know, essentially new MP school this week preparing for next week's big week. But the government says it wants this package to pass and it wants it to pass in full. It won't carve it up. Now, This week was the crucial week where Labor was going to reveal what it would do on this issue. And the Shadow Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, addressed the National Press Club where he said this. We have shifted our position. I mean, the position that we took to the election uh, was to support stage one, actually to to do better uh, at low and middle incomes, um, and to not support stages two and three. And we've shifted on stage two. We've recognised Uh, that we can do a better job of giving stage two tax cuts, getting them into workers' hands and flowing through the economy sooner. Uh, And so we have made that proposal. We've made that compromise suggestion. If the government was thinking rationally about what the economy needs now and what's possible in the parliament and the fact that stage three doesn't come in for another 262 weeks, uh, then they would pick up our idea and they would run with it. So Labor resolved to support stage one They'd already said that. We all knew that throughout the election campaign. Now they've shifted on the second stage of the tax cuts, but they also want them brought forward by three years, which is significant. And they also want the infrastructure spending, which goes out for many, many years, to be accelerated as well. They say it's all part of what they think should happen to stimulate the economy, because obviously the economy is uh, struggling at the moment and it could get worse but they still haven't revealed a position on stage three. And this is, I think, quite key because there were people, in fact, Joel Fitzgibbon on your show just the morning before Shadow Cabinet was going to meet saying they should wave the whole thing through if they're not successful with it being carved up. And they haven't been successful with it being carved up. No, that's true. So they still, well, they haven't revealed a a position in the sense that if they try and block stage three and amend it so stage three is carved off, which is what they want, which the government won't allow, so that amendment won't get through, then will they just wave it through? Well, maybe, or will they block it and make the government take it to the Senate and see if they can get the crossbench? That's a whole other thing. But they have, in a sense, revealed their position, which is they are opposed to it. And so they're still sticking to this line of, you know, when's the government going to tell us what the cost of stage three is? We know it's $95 billion all up, but two points about that, how much of that goes to the very high income earners, people earning over $200,000, and of course there's millionaires and billionaires who get a tax cut under this stage, um, but also how they're going to pay for it. Now, this is tricky for Labor because if they are left high and dry, if Centre Alliance, say, with Jackie Lambie, and this looks as though it will happen, in fact, Senator Rex Patrick from Centre Alliance is quoted as saying that there are no roadblocks, 
blocks really he thinks that they can get there, an agreement with the government on the tax package. That's a bit of another story. But if it goes through, then Labor's left as the, as the team that didn't want to give you a tax cut. And the government will try and hang that around their neck every day between now and right through the next election. And you can bet it'll be there in the next election campaign. At the same time, you know, the government still has questions to answer and it depends how adroit Labor is at prosecuting this because the government hasn't gone even close to answering how uh, progressive or regressive this stage three is, how much it's skewed towards high-income earners, how big a tax cut they're going to get, what proportion of this $95 billion will go to the very wealthy amongst us or exactly how they're going to be paying for it because $95 billion, that's a lot of tax cut. We do have... What do we keep hearing? Headwinds coming in the international uh, global economy. We don't know, for instance, what the price of iron ore might be uh, in 2024. That has a big impact on the government's, how much the government has in its revenue base to spend on tax cuts. So the government really hasn't spelled this out. It says it's all there in the budget. It's actually not really. So there's questions on both sides. But in the short term, you think Labor has left itself with a job to do to explain come next election... You know, and as Jim Chalmers says, this tax cut is 262 weeks away. You know, what would Labor do? Is it actually going to go to an election promising people they're going to rip them off their tax cut? Mm. That's a hard position to sell. What's important about this too is that part of stage three has already been legislated. It's a very complex tax package, but some of it's already been legislated. So well, that's the first package. So that's a different stage three, yeah, isn't but, it? But, but, but either way, what Jim Chalmers has left the door open on is repealing that, right? And mm. that is, that is I, as you were saying, like I just think the proposition of going to an election and saying we're going to take something from you, it's different if it's, you know, not been legislated but we're I going agree. to repeal is a very risky proposition. And that's why yeah. we're seeing this kind of very public activism from people like Joel Fitzgibbon who have been around for a really long time and know how this stuff stings. You know, you don't stand in the well, way. let's face it, we just saw, I mean, Labor has just copped the flack for going to an election telling some people they're going to take something away from them. So, you know, Joel Fitzgibbon felt the impact of that. He got, you know, a whack on his behind in his electorate um, because of Labor's tax policies to, to some degree. So this is all happening at the same time as the Prime Minister Mr. Scott Morrison is at the G20 summit. Now, he's going to have a very key meeting with Donald Trump. And he said some interesting things too, hasn't he, Fran, in terms of uh, the role that we want to play or that the Prime Minister thinks we should play as a middle power in this discussion, in this trying to de-escalate the trade wars. Do, do you think he's going to have much impact because ultimately, you know, I don't know how much impact we can really have. Well, he's had a win so already. He's got invited to the first meeting with the US president. He's having dinner with him before the um, summit even kicks off, not just with him, but with some of the president's top advisors, people like John Bolton and Mike Pompeo and others. So he's there at the top table. That's a good start for Scott Morrison. He gave a very strong speech um, on foreign policy before he headed off to Osaka. So the PM clearly trying to sort of stand up and stamp his ground as the Prime Minister. He was sort of like a caretaker PM after the Turnbull overthrow because all the polls suggested he wasn't going to be around for long. Well, now he's around at least for the next three years and he's trying to use that to, in, you know, give himself a sense of authority here at home and also projecting onto the world stage. So he says, we can't stand passively by and just let the US and China engage in this trade war, which is having a global impact, particularly, you know, in a country like Australia. But 
you know, how persuasive is he going to be? I think not much. I think it's going to be Donald Trump will be much more persuaded by those who crunch the numbers and look what's happening on their economy back home and China too. I mean, they're going to look at their own self-interest. But there is a growing push beyond the comments from our Prime Minister. China has been getting a bit of a soft deal. It needs to start playing by the rules. And, uh, you know, there does need to be some change of behaviour from China too. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, Donald Trump's rhetoric doesn't particularly help. And let's welcome to the party room now Annika Smithhurst. And Annika is the national politics editor at News Corp Sundays. She's also the journalist at the centre of the Press Freedom Row that erupted a few weeks ago. It was her home. You might remember she was the journalist whose home was raided by AFP, Federal Police Officers. Seven hours they spent in her home. Anyway, she's here now, which I'm sure is a, a nice relief. Lovely to join you both. Look, I'm not going to go through your cookbooks. I'm not going to go through, you know... Your Christmas decorations. I'd love to do that. (laughs) I know. And I made the mistake of saying they went through my sewing basket and now I'm getting so much grief of being a patchworker. Now, a story which dominated this week and has really hit politics big time, even though it's really not a political story, but it is, is Israel Folau's fundraising efforts. He's now raised $1.8 million in donations. And look, it's probably still going up. We're recording this on a Thursday morning. It's quite an extraordinary amount, really. The donations poured in with the help of the Australian Christian Lobby after GoFundMe's decision to shut down his initial fundraising page. So on the face of it, many people argue this is a simple contract issue, But in reality, it's really become a much bigger conversation, hasn't it, Annika? I think it should be a contract issue. I think right at the start of this, this is something that was an issue between him and Rugby Australia. I don't think that's where we're at now. But in the same way that, you know, I work at a company and and you guys, you know, have limits at the ABC, you can't start promoting, you know, advertising on, on your shows, I think... This is something that he did. He broke, uh, you know, he'd been warned about this. Let's remember, this wasn't the first time he'd put something on social media that had annoyed his bosses. And and he did it again knowingly, knowing that, you know, this was something that they wouldn't have been happy with. So what started out as a contractual issue, I think really has become a freedom of speech issue. I, I don't know if everybody who's giving money to him necessarily agrees with him, but I think it's tapped into something that we in the media perhaps have underestimated, that there is a lot of Australians out there who feel like uh, there's things they can't say. And I think that's where the the sort of um, genius behind this and where the money is coming from. I don't even think that everybody who supports Israel Folau's right for free speech is out there saying what he said was at all acceptable. But the fact that he's lost his job for doing so seems to have angered a lot of people. I think that's true. And some of the politicians, some of the certainly the Christian lobby is claiming this as a, a fight and a victory for the quiet Australians. So adopting Scott Morrison's pitch there that, you know, he represents the quiet Australian. So it's getting very quickly conflated, isn't it, into an issue about religious freedoms, which we know is an issue that's going to hit the parliament in the next few weeks or few months, certainly. It's an issue that a lot of Liberal MPs and senators are exercised about, but also a lot of Labor MPs and senators are exercised about in the wake of the last election loss because, you know, Chris Bowen, others came out after that and said, you know, religious freedom, we are perceived by some communities of faith to not represent them and to want to shut down their freedom to express their faith. Annika, a number of politicians are coming out on this, including Stephen Jones, a Labor MP who spoke to PK about this. Most of us on the centre-left of politics, you believe in multiculturalism. 
well, this is what multiculturalism looks like. It looks like people of different cultures, different faiths, different backgrounds coming to our country, expressing different views, even if they fundamentally disagree with the views that I hold. I mean, I, I was the guy who stood in that parliament over there uh, a few years ago and moved the first private member's bill on marriage equality that ever got voted on. I fundamentally disagree with what Israel Folau has been saying, but I'm very uncomfortable with the way that this debate has been handled. Annika, I think he's probably right. The way it's been handled has not gone so well, but I don't necessarily think I agree with him that this is necessarily what multicultural Australia looks like, because we have social values and norms and, and laws in this country to protect them. Multiculturalism doesn't get people a free reign, does it, to stamp all over them? No, but I think I think his point there, he might have been sloppy in the way he sort of uh, delivered that. But if you go back to the same-sex marriage uh, vote, those la- a lot of those Labor seats that we were talking about just then, Chris Bowen's seat and those areas with high multiculturalism voted against it. And they're very strong religious communities, not one religion. It doesn't necessarily have to be Christianity. It can be Islam or mm-hmm. um, a lot of Hindus in these areas. And that, the point I think Stephen Jones was trying to make is that uh, these areas where we have high multiculturalism tend to, not always, but tend to have higher levels of religion. And this is areas where they're feeling, you know, that they can't uh, express that. Um, and, and I think this plays into the Israel Folau thing. So, uh, look, I, I think it's a really difficult one for Labor. And I always say, I love these issues we get in Parliament where, you know, they're not clear-cut left-right issues. And as you say, after the election, we saw people like uh, Bowen and those people in Western Sydney who whose electorates uh, often voted against same-sex marriage and are highly religious. And I think it's a really interesting one that Labor is going to have to tackle. When we actually come to this debate about the religious freedoms and and what the government is going to do about this, I think it'll be very interesting to see how Labor tackle it. Annika, we've got you here. It would be remiss of us to not talk about the press freedom debate that's going on at the moment. We had really unheard of um, a little trio at the National Press Club this week. We had the managing director of the ABC, David Anderson. We had the chief executive of News Corp Australasia, Michael Miller, that's your boss, and the CEO of Nine Media, Hugh Marks, all at the Press Club, calling for law changes to better protect press freedom. Australia continues to slide down the world rankings of countries with a free press and a commitment to open government. This simply is not good enough. And it is impossible to overstate the importance of the right to know. Access to information underpins other human rights. Knowledge truly is power. But power can only be exercised when it is acknowledged and protected. Put simply, it's more risky, it's more expensive to do journalism that makes a real difference in this country than it ever has been before. Annika, it was a rare show of unity from these three media organisations who are often each other's harshest critics. Let's deal with you personally before we get to the impact of what the changes they're proposing. Did you Do you find this reassurance, this media coming together like this nationally? You were name-checked yourself in the press club address from your boss. I mean, you are at the heart of this. In one small way, this is about you. <laughs> um, are you reassured by where this debate is heading? Yeah, uh, the head of the press club came up to me yesterday when I was there and just said, you know, we're putting all this on for you, you know, and it was a joke, (laughs) but it did sort of feel like, I don't know, a a birthday party or something. And look, after this all happened, I just took two weeks off and I was in Vietnam and tried to avoid it, although I actually was recognised there and it did make the news there. But that aside, this is not something I wanted at all. I would prefer none of this ever happened. But I guess the way I say it is if, if this is 
what had to happen in order for, um, I guess, that you know, uniting of, of different media outlets and for the anger that people are feeling about this. And, and the support I've had has been overwhelming my inbox and my text messages. And if anyone's listening who got in touch and I didn't get back, I'm sorry, I will. But it 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 is heartening. The response has been incredible. And I think, um, sadly, we've all been guilty of, of sort of letting, um, you know, national security laws and and get in the way of perhaps press freedom. And, and I think it was Hugh Marks yesterday from Nine Fairfax who, who said that it's like the uh, boiling frog analogy. You know, it's just happened slowly and little bit by little bit. And all of a sudden we've slipped down that world ranking and we should be embarrassed by that. But also not only embarrassed, um, really worried about what that means for for press freedom and we'll go through it, but there's a bunch of changes that, you know, all these media organisations that usually take pot shots at each other that have decided that, no, we're coming together and we're going to call for it. And I don't think they're going to let up on that crusade. No. So in terms of that crusade, you, you not only are you a victim of this, but you are also a reporter, of course. So what do you make of the appetite in the government for the reform? Because these are powerful media bosses. They've come together. I think some times I'm going to go there. I think the government enjoys that everyone's at each other's throats. So there is strength in this unity that I think must make the government slightly uncomfortable when news corporations hanging out with the ABC and, you know, planning a, a, a sort of a manifesto of, of change on law reform. But will they take the chance? Because one of the messages from the media bosses was don't just kick the can down the road and do a sort of inquiry that, that can go on forever. Change the laws. Absolutely. And I think they, speaking to MPs privately, uh, I think they are a little um, concerned about this. As you say, they sort of rely on this sort of internal war we all have and, oh, and they love play it. off each other. They love it because you can play one off the other. And all of a sudden, uh, this sort of coming together and you know, I think it was quite powerful that they ignored the offer of, you know, a Senate inquiry. That was seen as, mm. oh, well, we'll just get, you know, a, a bunch of senators to travel around Australia and listen to the woes of journalists and nod their head and supportive and put out a report in a few months that no one will hear. And it's it's cynical, but often that is seen as, you know, a quick fix and a Band-Aid solution. And the message yesterday from the bosses was, well, no, these are the six changes we want and you can do them without mucking around and we want them now. And look, it might not help me. I think, you know, my case now is uh, in the hands of the AFP. Uh, the High Court is going to hear it and it's really up to the AFP prosecutors and, and there's very little that the government can do now, even though privately there's been, you know, a lot of support. But I think if they think the pressure is going to go away, I, th I think they're wrong. Um, I spoke privately to a lot of people in that room yesterday and I don't think they're going to let up. There's often, as you'd know, there's a, there's a lot of ministers and, and high up people in the government think that just think a phone call to a media boss or an editor yep. can fix a problem and make it go away. And I just, the message I got yesterday was if they think that's how they're going to solve this one, it's mm. not. It was important they were saying, no, we don't have time for that. We've got to change these rules now, change some of the laws now. And particularly yeah. I, I was interested in, well, the demands for a better freedom of information regime. People have been calling that for ages. Better protections for public whistleblowers, again, critical. And also maybe some structure around what gets stamped secret for a start Absolutely. on papers because there's a whole lot stamped secret and classified. It's not to say some documents must not be, should not be classified. Of course they should be in the interest of national security. But if too much is being stamped like that, and we even see it with cabinet papers, don't we? Stamp cabinet when really it's just a shopping list or something to protect it being used or, or brought forward in freedom of information. That could make a real difference. Just to finish off on this, Annika, has the AFP 
confirmed whether this investigation into you is, is going further? Is it into you or is it into the whistleblower any more about that? You can tell us. Uh, all I know at the moment is um, we are going to the High Court and the AFP are continuing to investigate. It's a very long and slow process, but we're going to argue that the warrant for the raid was actually unconstitutional. Now, press freedom is not explicitly laid out in the Constitution, but it has been sort of acknowledged over the years at different times. So uh, that's the argument we're going to take. But it looks like they're still continuing with it. And, and whilst there is some sort of privately, private conversation saying, oh, they're not after you, they're after the whistleblower, I don't separate the two that easily. You know, I am a journalist mm. who protects a source. And if you're going after my source, you're going after me. And also the head of the AFP during a press conference the day after the raid said that they were still open to prosecution for journalists. So, look, I, I wouldn't say that I'm sitting there thinking, um, you know, jail is still an, an option and a possibility. And it's very nice that everyone says, oh, you'll be right and offers me support. But it's a reality I have to deal with at the mm. moment. And um, unfortunately, the law doesn't move very quickly. So it could be no. with me for a while yet. Yeah, that's right. Look, Annika, good luck with that, because I a do think... sleepless nights. Yeah, I think it's very stressful mm. on a personal level, as you know, but also just um, I think... Australia is on your side. I think people broadly believe in public interest journalism and uh, and that the government hopefully will get that message. Look, before we do go, I just think it's worth mentioning something that's going to bubble away and has clearly irritated Rex Patrick and I'm sure others. Christopher Pine, everyone remembers Christopher Pine. He's no longer in Parliament, um, but he has a new job. He was Defence Minister up until the election. Now he's taken a job as a defence consultant at EY. Central Alliance's Rex Patrick says it doesn't pass the pub test because, of course, well, he has a lot of information about defence and his work is in defence. Do you think this is a bit of a muddy or murky area? I think there's, they're definitely onto something. Like the ministerial standard says that it's clear. It says for 18 months after you know you leave office, ministers can't lobby, you know, other members of government on matters they've dealt with as ministers. And Christopher Pine has come straight out of that defence portfolio. He didn't give it up. Uh, you know, not that it would have mattered when he resigned. He had it right up until the election. Um, and you can't unknow what you know. Yeah, it's We've the fine print, it. though, isn't it? You can't lobby. And he <laughs> says, well, I'm not lobbying. I mean, it's just really we need much better standards around this, don't we? And this is the problem. We talk about a lobbyist register and lobbyist passes, but I can't imagine what else he is doing um, in that role. They might, you know, say it's advice, but it is a murky area. And it, I guess the optics of it aren't good. As we talk about the pub test, which is something Rex Patrick says, and, uh, and I think that that really does come down to it. And I think it's another uncomfortable one for the government uh, and for the Prime Minister. But it's worth saying the Prime Minister's away this week. Just a final thought from you, Annika, while all of this uh, ugly revelations, the one earlier this week, as well that Peter Dutton was offered the deputy's role by Malcolm Turnbull, all of this kind of bloodletting on that period. He's probably very happy that he's been away for this period. I think so. I was with uh, Malcolm Turnbull in Washington the week that Barnaby Joyce sort of unravelled over his uh, extramarital affair and I think he was so relieved to be away from it. So I imagine it's a similar situation this week for Scott Morrison. And look, to Scott Morrison's credit, I was at the last G20 with him and, and Angela Merkel had a little piece of 
the paper with his picture on it and <laughs> he, he didn't get a meeting with some of the people he really wanted to. And it's a lot's changed in, in just under a year. He's now uh, sitting down with Trump tonight and having a, a nice romantic dinner by the sounds of it. I love that you called it romantic. See you, Annika. We were just discussing in the office if they'd have candles. I don't know. So <laughs> Or burgers. Candles or burgers. Annika, thanks. Not a problem. Thanks. Friends gather round. It's time for question time. In fact, we are starting question time before real question time starts next week. <laughs> Our first question comes from Carolyn. Hi, Fran and PK. So while I'm waiting for Fran's song, I'm wondering if you could answer this question. What prevents a member of the Senate being Prime Minister? Couldn't a senatorial PM nominate a representative in the lower house? Well, Carolyn, first things first, there is no song today. I'm sorry about that, but there will be one another day. Um, look, yeah, they can, they could, but they won't. And I, I guess this is a question for all those who Labor supporters who think Penny Wong should be leader of the Labor Party, and there's a lot of those if um, people come up to me all the time and saying that, um, but she's in the Senate, so she's not. And that's, She also has absolutely no desire. No desire, that's the other reason. But, yes, the Senate is the main reason because it's always believed that if... if if a senator wants to be leader, then in fact a sure way to know that a senator has ambition is when they start to contest a lower house seat and move down to the House of Reps. I think the only reason, as far as I know, is that the House of Reps is the main arena. It's the showground. Um, it's where the cut and thrust of political debate, of policy debates are made. It's where the laws are first passed and tested by and large. And so that's the reason why the leader of the country needs to be there because that is the main arena. As far as I know, that is the reason why. Yes, of course, every minister in the in the upper house has someone representing them in question time in the lower house. So in theory, you could do that. But what's the point if the prime minister is not engaged in the major debates of the day? That's the real point of it. Lose a lot of power of the position, I think. Thanks, Caroline. Good question. PK, this one's for you. This is from Jenny. And Jenny says... I have so much respect for Patricia Carvelis after seeing her wear a short sleeve top on Insiders on a very cold Melbourne morning. So here's a fun question. Do you have stylists and who are your favourite Australian designers that you like wearing on television? PK, do tell. Oh, well, uh, let me get the fashionista in me out. Look, the first thing is if I wear short sleeves and you think it's cold, I'm not thinking it's cold because I'm under hot lights, just to be clear. I don't ever allow myself to be cold. I want everyone to know I never, ever allow myself to be cold. It's not just to show off those guns of yours. Well, I have fantastic arms, but that is not <laughs> the reason. No, I don't actually. Um, Mr Burns-like arms, actually, you should see me in swimming classes when I have to, like, lift the children. I can't. So, no, I don't have particularly good arms, but I wear whatever I want to wear. No, I don't have a stylist. I have an older sister who gives me all of her best clothes. My partner occasionally buys me clothes because I never shop because I hate shopping. I think it's a waste of time. And I can't tell you about designers because this is the ABC and that would be completely inappropriate and weird. And I also don't really have any favourite designers because I'm completely random. And Fran, before we go, I have one trading preference. Does everyone remember trading preferences where we kind of try and crack each other up? I love trading preferences. Yeah, everyone loved it. It's kind of randomly back today and it will be occasionally. Now, we all know Queenslanders love their state. In fact, I love their state too. What's not to like about Queensland? No more so than the new member for Lily, Annika Wells. Well, firstly, Queensland is the best country in the world. Yep, the Queenslanders do love their state, don't they? The best country in the world. Oh, you've got to feel for a new MP. They had new MP school in, in Parliament, so they came to learn the lessons. And one of those lessons is be careful on the doors.
be careful on the doors and when you see a camera, turn the other way. No, don't. We need you on camera. On that note, goodbye from us for this week. Now, we welcome more Question Time submissions. Record them if you want. Tweet them at us. Email them to us, thepartyroom at abc.net.au or hashtag thepartyroom. That's it from us. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.